Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to begin this morning. While you're turning your Bibles there, I'm going to go ahead and take another opportunity to welcome any of the visitors that we have in our audience this morning. You are certainly our honored guests. If you have any questions or concerns about anything that's said or done here this morning, we would be more than happy to speak with you at the close of services. I also want to take just a, a brief moment to, to thank the elders and, and the members here for uh, giving me the, the chance to fill in this morning for Jacob. For those of you who haven't made the connection already, I am not Jacob. I know the, the, uh, the likeness is uncanny, but it is, it is not me. Or it's not Jacob, it is me. Um, but I, I really appreciate the opportunity this morning. I've, I've done a little bit of preaching, uh, not a lot, a little bit, uh, up in north central Arkansas, around Marshall, Arkansas, as well as Fox, Arkansas. Um, but I have to tell you the truth, I have never preached in front of an audience that is going to see me the next Wednesday. So please be nice, Skip, be nice. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. This morning, what I want to talk about is faith. I want to talk about faith. You know, often we discuss faith, and it is directed at either those who don't have faith, those who need to develop it for the first time, or it is directed at those who misunderstand faith. We like to talk about doctrinal issues regarding faith and the way that others view it. But for the next few moments, I want to spend some time talking to those of us who already have faith, those of us who are already disciples of Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38 says, the just shall live by faith. That's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2. But how do we view and evaluate our faith? Do we evaluate our faith? Or do we simply view faith as a step in the process, a box that has been checked, something that I did a long time ago, I've, I've got that taken care of, the book is closed and it's on the shelf, faith is not something I need to go back over. Now admittedly, I'm probably not going to present you any new or novel ideas on this topic. But I do think it's important for us to have frequent reminders of how important our faith truly is. And I especially want to impress upon you this morning that just having faith isn't always enough. Just having faith isn't always enough. In fact, we're fooling ourselves if we think that our faith is sufficient simply because it exists. We are fooling ourselves if we think that our faith is sufficient simply because it exists. In fact, for the next few moments, what I want us to consider are three different situations in which faith, although it exists, it is nevertheless insufficient. Faith that although it exists, it is nevertheless insufficient. Well, the first type of faith that although it exists, it's nevertheless insufficient, is what I would call a weak faith. A weak faith. If you will, look with me, if you've turned your Bibles over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, this is a story that we all know very well. The disciples are out on a boat in the sea. 
And Jesus comes to them walking on water. Picking up in verse 24. It says, But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It is clear from Jesus' admonition to Peter that Jesus was disapproving of Peter's faith. He said, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's faith was a doubting faith. It was a wavering faith. And ultimately, it was a weak faith. But I want to note that it's not that Peter had no faith at all. In fact, from my perspective, Peter was pretty bold. He had some faith. I don't even know if I would have been able to do what he did. You see, Peter got out of the boat in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, and began walking on the water towards what these men thought was a ghost. In fact, it says that the men cried out in fear. Peter had some faith, did he not? Peter was willing to get out of the boat and walk on water. But the fact of the matter was, Peter's faith was not full. It was not complete. And when the winds and the waves started to crash around him, Peter's faith showed its true colors. Peter's faith wavered. The problem was not that he had no faith. The problem was that his faith was insufficient. Now, not to be too hard on Peter, Jesus also admonished his other disciples in a similar manner. If you will turn back a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, it seems like the disciples, for being all of, uh, so many of them being fishermen, it seems like they would have uh, a little more confidence when out on the water. But once again, in verse 23, the disciples are out on the boat, and this time Jesus is with them. It says, now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so the boat was covered with waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Once again, Jesus admonishes his disciples for having little or weak faith. You know, often the disciples seemed to be in this situation. They seemed to have faith that didn't stand up 
to the test that was in front of them. In fact, in the very end, when Jesus is betrayed, it's not just one of his disciples that betrays him, it is all of them. They all flee and leave him, tuck tail and run. You know, for us today, when the wind and the wave starts crashing around us in our lives, probably not literally, but metaphorically, when the wind and the waves start crashing around us in our lives, does our faith stand firm or does it begin to waver and doubt? If it does, I'm going to guess that if Jesus were here today, he would respond a very similar way. He would shake his head and he would say, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? A weak faith is an insufficient faith. Well, the next kind of faith that, although it exists, is nevertheless insufficient, is an inactive faith. An inactive faith. I think most of you can guess where I'm going. If you will, turn your Bibles with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going to hit just a couple of the verses here in James chapter 2 beginning with verse 14. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? The answer in verse 17, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dropping down to verse 19, You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Dropping down to verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And in verse 26, for as a body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. A faith that is inactive is an insufficient faith. I want to note again that this is not someone being described here who doesn't have any faith at all. In fact, this seems to be a debate about faith. The person who isn't working is committed to the idea that he has faith. He's arguing his point. I have faith. And James even concedes that he believes that there is one God, he does well. This is someone who has faith. The problem, though, is that his faith does not prompt him to action. His faith does not prompt him to action. This is true for us today. The religious world loves easy beliefism. And i, I got to be honest with you. If there's an easy way to do something, if there's a bare minimum... I'm probably the guy to be doing the bare minimum. But it is eminently clear that a faith that is inactive is simply an insufficient faith. It's not okay. Well, finally, a faith without love is an insufficient faith. A faith without love is an insufficient faith. If you will, turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're kind of laying the groundwork here for the rest of the sermon. Setting up some truths, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
Beginning in verse 1, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I want you to note that the person described here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is someone who has already remedied the insufficiencies of the previous two people that we have discussed. This person does not have a weak faith. In fact, it says they have all faith so that I could remove mountains. I think it's curious that Paul uses this example when discussing faith in this manner. Because it's the same way that Jesus tells his disciples they ought to trust in him. An example of this is found in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 21. It says, so Jesus, said, so Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, if you have faith and do not doubt, not Peter's kind of faith, not the, not the kind of faith that doubts and wavers, but if you have a full faith, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. Paul is using that exact same analogy, saying that this person, that great of a faith, the kind of faith that Jesus asks of his disciples, if you have that faith, but you don't have love, you have Nothing. Likewise, the person here doesn't have an inactive faith. The person here described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 has a faith that puts his money where his mouth is. It says, though I give all my goods to feed the poor. You ever done that? That's pretty committed. Not just does he give his goods to feed the poor, it says though I give my body to be burned. It's not just a working faith. This is a self-sacrificial faith. But once again, it is insufficient if it does not have love. It is not enough just to say that I have a faith. Faith can be insufficient. It can be insufficient when it is weak, when it is inactive, and when it is without love. You know, for us in the church, without love is probably the one we struggle with the most. We are really great about knowing all the right things. We are really, really great about doing all the right things. We are not so great about doing it with love. Faith without love is insufficient. Well, now that we've set the, the, the groundwork here for when faith can be insufficient, what are our takeaways? What can we do with this? Well, first of all, I think it's vitally important that we not fall into the trap 
of viewing faith as simply a step in the process. Faith is not a one-time thing that we did a long time ago. Faith is not merely a step in the process. Faith is the process. Faith is the process. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that by grace you have been saved through faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that without faith it is impossible to please God. Verses like that emphasize the importance of faith with respect to our eternal condition. But saving faith, and a faith that is pleasing in God's sight, is a faith that encompasses all three components we've discussed. It must be full, it must be active, and it must be motivated by love. And we need to frequently ask ourselves where our faith stands. We're doing ourselves a disservice if we are not often evaluating ourselves on this topic. Because in reality, an insufficient faith, as I've uh, coined it, is just a, just a fancy way of saying a faith that does not save. That's all we're saying here, is that an insufficient faith is not a saving faith. Well, point number two. We need to remember that faith is so much more than what we don't do. Faith is so much more than what we don't do. So often I find myself uh, gauging my spirituality on what I don't do. And I especially like to compare myself to people in the world because, boy, I can feel pretty good about myself uh, after I make that comparison. I can, I can ramble off a list of things I don't do. I don't drink. I don't party. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery, I don't fornicate, I don't murder, so on and so on and so on. But the fact of the matter is, what I don't do is the easiest part of my Christianity. It's the easiest part. To be 100% honest with you, I don't deserve a pat on the back this morning for not murdering. It's just not that hard for me not to murder. I don't seem to have too many homicidal tendencies. Um, it's just not that hard. I shouldn't be too proud about that one. What is hard for me, though, is loving my enemy and doing good to those who spitefully use me. That's hard. Not murdering, easy. Loving my enemy, mm. That's hard. That's where the rubber hits the road. In fact, if you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a chapter that uh, many of us have coined the hall of faith. This is the chapter where if you're really looking for what faith looks like, God's idea of faith, you need look no further than Hebrews chapter 11. What I want to do for a couple moments is just consider how much activity is going on here. This is not a chapter about what people didn't do. This is a chapter about what people did. Just a couple of these. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah prepared. 
By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise. By faith, Abraham offered. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So on and so on. But I especially want us to note verses 33 through 39. If you will, read along with me. Discussing the great heroes of faith. Note what they did. It says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the enemies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith. That's what faith should look like. And it's very easy for me to look at these people in the Bible, to look at the individuals, the stories that are told, and to come away thinking, wow, that's great, but that is, that's unrealistic. That is so other, that is uh, so unique. There is something different about those individuals. Uh, they, they lived in a different time. They had different circumstances. I can read that, and I can rationalize my position. But the fact of the matter is, the expectation has not changed. Look with me in chapter 12. And in verse 1, it begins with a concluding word. It says, therefore, therefore, in conclusion, we also, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run a race with endurance, the race that is set before us. We also. The question for you this morning is if Hebrews chapter 11 was being written this morning, if it was being written today, would you be there? Would I be there? Better yet, if you had your own Hebrews chapter 11 that was being written just about you, what would it look like? Would you be proud of your Hebrews chapter 11? Would you want to share it with other people? Say, look at all the things that I've done. My great faith. Or would you be a little bit embarrassed? Final takeaway for us this morning is that our faith is evidence for good or for bad. So often we view our faith as something that only affects me. It only matters to me whether I'm taking this seriously or not. But Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 tells us something different. 
in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Your faith evidences things not seen. The great faith chapter is bookended by evidence. In chapter 12, verse 1, what we just read, notice what he calls these great heroes of faith. It says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You know what witnesses are? You know what they do in court? They testify. They provide evidence. In fact, it would not be improper to just go ahead and classify witnesses as evidence. That's what they're there for. That's what they do. And so our faith is evidence of things not seen. We are witnesses to what we believe in. We are witnesses of Christ. And more specifically, our faith evidences the veracity of Christ's claims, that he was who he said he was, that he was truly the Son of God. I want, to, I want us to consider Jesus' prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. I want you to know what he says. In John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, it says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I give them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Jesus' prayer is that the world would know that the Father sent him. It's not just that Jesus wanted the world to know about him. Certainly people, even irreligious people, believe Jesus, the historical figure, did in fact exist. He prays that the world would come to know him through the evidence of our faith. He prays that this would be accomplished not through sermons or debates, not through arguments on social media, but through the unity of our faith in one another, with one another, and with the Father. You see, people cannot see Christ anymore. They can only see us wearing His name. You've probably heard the old saying, you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. Well, this is very similar. Because we wear Christ's name, you may be the only Christ someone ever sees. So when people use Christians' actions like hypocrisy and strife as a reason why they will never be a Christian, have you asked us... Have you stopped to ask maybe whether that's exactly what you're evidencing in your actions? 
That's the evidence you're giving to support your claim that Jesus is who he truly says he is. Here's why I think this is so important. Our faith should be so much more than that which initially leads us to be cleansed of our sins. And it ought to be so much more than something that just occasionally guides our life. Our faith is a living, talking, breathing testimony of who Jesus Christ was and who the God we serve is. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, I think you see this sentiment expressed by Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is in good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The idea of being salt and a light places emphasis on the idea that our faith demonstrates a substance directly correlated and attributable to the Father. And so the question for us to answer is this. As you wear the name Christ, does your faith in your daily life evidence who he truly was? When others see your faith in action, do they leave with the impression that you must be imitating one who was sent from above? I appreciate your kind attention. I want to leave you with one final thought. We have talked a lot about faith. We've talked a lot about the sufficiency and insufficiency of faith, what it should look like in our lives, but we haven't discussed much about how to make this a reality. It's great that we have these, uh, these thoughts and ideas, but how do we put it into practice? Well, I want to give you one idea, one suggestion for developing a sufficient faith. Certainly not a comprehensive suggestion, but a good one. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 25, most of us are very familiar with this passage. It's the passage we go to to say, you got to be here. You got to be here. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. That's the verse we use to say, come and worship, be here, be here with us. But have you ever looked at the preceding verses, the benefits, the reason why you ought to be here? Beginning in verse 22, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more, as you see the day approaching. The preceding three verses, right before the writer of Hebrews says, you ought not forsake the assembling of the saints, he tells us that as a group, let us, let us, let us, we can grow a full assurance of faith, of faith without wavering. And as a group, we will stir up one another to love and good works. The components of a sufficient faith are developed when we, when we assemble together, when we're together. This is a team effort. He makes that clear. He says, let us, let us, let us. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that if you aren't here, it's not just hurting yourself, it's hurting the team. It is hurting the team. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate the opportunity to uh, speak in front of you. Um, Jacob will be back. He will be back. <laughs> For those of you here, who are here this morning who have uh, not had, not taken that first step, who have not developed a faith for the very first time, there is no better time than right now. There is no better time to put on Christ in baptism, to begin that walk of faith. And if there are those here this morning who reflect and look back and say, you know what, my faith isn't exactly where it ought to be. It's grown weak, it's grown inactive, and it lacks love. Whatever your need, please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.